Section 7 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. George Washington, Part 2. There were, moreover, jealousies among his generals, and suppressed hostility to him, as an aristocrat, a slaveholder, and an Episcopalian. As soon as Boston was evacuated, General Howe sailed for Halifax to meet his brother, Admiral Howe, with reinforcements for New York. Washington divined his purpose and made all haste. When he reached New York on the 13th of April, he found even greater difficulties to contend with than had annoyed him in Boston. Raw troops, undisciplined and undrilled, a hostile Tory population, conspiracies to take his life, sectional jealousies, and always a divided Congress, and the want of experienced generals. There was nothing of that inspiring enthusiasm which animated the New England farmers after the Battle of Bunker Hill. Washington held New York, and the British fleet were masters of the bay. He might have withdrawn his forces in safety, but so important a place could not be abandoned without a struggle. Therefore, although he had but 8,000 effective men, he fortified as well as he could the heights on Manhattan Island to the north, and on Long Island to the south and east, and held his place. Meantime, Washington was laboring to strengthen his army, to suppress the mischievous powers of the Tories, to procure the establishment by Congress of a war office and some permanent army organization, to quiet jealousies among his troops, and to provide for their wants. In June, Sir William Howe arrived in New York Harbor and landed forces on Staten Island, his brother the Admiral being not far behind. News of disaster from a bold but futile expedition to Canada in the north, and of the coming from the south of Sir Henry Clinton, beaten off from Charleston, made the clouds thicken, when on July 2nd the Congress resolved that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, and on July 4th adopted the formal Declaration of Independence, an immense relief to the heart and mind of Washington, and one which he joyfully proclaimed to his army. Even then, however, and although his forces had been reinforced to 15,000 serviceable troops and 5,000 of raw militia, there was reason to fear that the British, with their 35,000 men and strong naval force, would surround and capture the whole American array. At last they did outflank the American forces on Long Island, and, pouring in upon them a vastly superior force, defeated them with great slaughter. While the British waited at night for their ships to come up, Washington, with admirable quickness, seized the single chance of escape, and under cover of a fog withdrew his 9,000 men from Long Island and landed them in New York once more. This retreat of Washington, when he was to all appearances in the power of the English generals, was masterly. In two short weeks thereafter, the British had sent ships and troops up both the Hudson and East Rivers, and New York was no longer tenable to Washington. He made his way up the Harlem River, where he was joined by Putnam, who had also contrived to escape with 4,000 men, and strongly entrenched himself at King's Bridge. Washington waited a few days at Harlem Plains, planning a descent on Long Island, and resolved on making a desperate stand. Meanwhile, Howe and his ships passed the forts on the Hudson and landed at Throg's Neck on the Sound, with a view of attacking the American entrenchments in the rear and cutting them off from New England. A brief delay on Howe's part enabled Washington to withdraw to a still stronger position on the hills, whereupon Howe retired to Dobbs Ferry, unable to entrap with his larger forces the wary Washington, but having now the complete command of the lower Hudson. There were, however, two strong fortresses on the Hudson which Congress was anxious to retain at any cost, a few miles above New York. 
Fort Washington on Manhattan Island, and Fort Lee on the New Jersey side of the river. These forts Howe resolved to capture. The commander-in-chief was in favor of evacuating them, but Green, who commanded at Fort Washington, thought he was strong enough to defend it. He made a noble defense, but was overwhelmed by vastly superior forces, and was compelled to surrender it with more than 2,000 men and, as Lord Cornwallis with 6,000 men then crossed the Hudson, Washington rapidly retreated into New Jersey with a dispirited army that included the little garrison of Fort Lee which had escaped in safety, and even this small army was fast becoming smaller, from expiring enlistments and other causes. General Lee, with a considerable division at North Castle, New Jersey, was ordered to rejoin his commander, but apparently from ambition for independent command disobeyed the order. From that moment, Washington distrusted Lee, who henceforth was his bete noire, who foiled his plans and was jealous of his ascendancy. Lee's obstinacy was punished by his being overtaken and captured by the enemy. Then followed a most gloomy period. We see Washington, with only the shadow of an army, compelled to retreat southward in New Jersey, hotly pursued by the well-equipped British, almost a fugitive, like David fleeing from the hand of Saul. He dared not risk an engagement against greatly superior forces in pursuit, triumphant and confident of success, while his followers were half-clad, without shoes, hungry, homesick, and forlorn. So confident was Howe of crushing the only army opposed to him that he neglected opportunities and made mistakes. At last the remnants of Lee's troops, commanded by Sullivan and Gates, joined Washington, but even with this reinforcement, giving him barely three thousand men, he could not face the enemy, more than double the number of his inexperienced soldiers. The only thing to do was to put the Delaware between himself and Howe's army. But it was already winter, and the Delaware was full of ice. Cornwallis, a general of great ability, felt sure that the dispirited men who still adhered to Washington could not possibly escape him, so he lingered in his march a fatal confidence, for when he arrived at the Delaware, Washington was already safely encamped on the opposite bank. Nor could he pursue, since all the boats on the river for seventy miles were either destroyed or in the hands of Washington. This successful retreat from the Hudson over the Delaware was another exhibition of high military qualities, caution, quick perception, and prompt action. Washington now had the nucleus of an army and could not be dislodged by the enemy, whose force was only about double his own. Howe was apparently satisfied with driving the American forces out of New Jersey, and retaining his hold at certain points, sent the bulk of his army back to New York. The aim of Washington was now to expel the British troops from New Jersey. It was almost a forlorn hope, but he never despaired. His condition was not more hopeless than that of William the Silent when he encountered the overwhelming armies of Spain. Always beaten, the heroic Prince of Orange still held out when Holland was completely overrun. But the United States were not overrun. New England was practically safe, although the British held Newport, and all the country south of the Delaware was free from them. The perplexities and discouragements of Washington were great indeed, while he stubbornly held the field with a beggarly makeshift of an army, and sturdily continued his appeals to Congress and to the country for men, arms, and clothing. Yet only New York City and New Jersey were really in possession of the enemy. It was one thing for England to occupy a few cities, and quite another to conquer a continent. Hence, Congress and the leaders of the rebellion never lost hope. So long as there were men left in peaceable possession of their farms from Maine to Georgia, and these men accustomed to firearms and resolved on freedom, there was no real cause of despair. The perplexing and discouraging things were that the men preferred the safety and comfort of their homes to the dangers and hardships of the camp, and that there was no money in the treasury to pay the troops, nor credit on which to raise it. 
hence desertions raggedness discontent suffering but not despair even in the breast of washington who realized the difficulties as no one else did men would not enlist unless they were paid and fed clothed and properly armed had there been an overwhelming danger they probably would have rallied as the dutch did when they opened their dikes or as the greeks rallied in their late revolution when fortress after fortress fell into the hands of the turks and as the american militia did in successive localities threatened by the british notably in new hampshire vermont and new york when they swarmed about burgoyne and captured him at saratoga but this was by no means the same as enlisting for a long period in a general army i mention these things not to discredit the bravery and patriotism of the revolutionary soldiers they made noble sacrifices and they fought gallantly but they did not rise above local patriotism and sustain the continental cause yet at no time even when washington with his small army was flying before cornwallis across new jersey were there grounds of despair there were discouragements difficulties and vexations and these could be traced chiefly to the want of a strong central government the government was divided against itself without money or credit in short a mere advisory board of civilians half the time opposed to the plans of the commander-in-chief but when washington had been driven beyond the delaware when philadelphia where congress was sitting was in danger then dictatorial powers were virtually conferred on washington the most unlimited authority was the phrase used and he had scope to act as he saw fit washington was it is true at times accused of incompetency and traitors slandered him but congress stood by him and the country had confidence in him as well it might since while he had not gained great victories and even perhaps had made military mistakes he had delivered boston had rescued the remnant of his army from the clutches of howe and cornwallis and had devoted himself by day and night to labors which should never have been demanded of him in keeping congress up to the mark as well as in his arduous duties in the field evincing great prudence sagacity watchfulness and energy but he had proved himself at least to be a fabius if he was not a hannibal but a hannibal is not possible without an army and a steady-handed fabius was the need of the times the caesars of the world are few and most of them have been unfaithful to their trust but no one doubted the integrity and patriotism of washington rival generals may have disliked his austere dignity and proud self-consciousness but the people and the soldiers adored him and while his general policy was and had to be a defensive one everybody knew that he would fight if he had any hope of success no one in the army was braver than he as proved not only by his early warfare against the french and indians but also by his whole career after he was selected for the chief command whenever a fair fighting opportunity was presented as seen in the following instance with his small army on the right bank of the delaware toilsomely increased to about four thousand men he now meditated offensive operations against the unsuspecting british who had but just chased him out of new jersey accordingly with unexpected audacity on christmas night he recrossed the delaware marched nine miles and attacked the british troops posted at trenton it was not a formal battle but a raid and proved successful the enemy amazed retreated then with fresh reinforcements they turned upon washington he evaded them and on january third seventeen seventy seven made a fierce attack on their lines at princeton attended with the same success utterly routing the british these were small victories but they encouraged the troops aroused the new jersey men to enthusiasm and alarmed cornwallis who retreated northward to new brunswick to save his military stores in a few days the english retained only that town amboy and paulus hook all in new jersey 
thus in three weeks in the midst of winter washington had won two fights taken two thousand prisoners and was as strong as he was before he crossed the hudson and the winter of seventeen seventy seven opened with hope in the revolutionary ranks washington then entrenched himself at morristown and watched the forces of the english generals and for six months nothing of consequence was done by either side it became evident that washington could not be conquered except by large reinforcements to the army of howe another campaign was a necessity to the disgust and humiliation of the british government and the wrath of george the third the declaration of independence thus far had not proved mere rhetoric the expulsion of the british troops from new jersey by inferior forces was regarded in europe as a great achievement and enabled franklin at paris to secure substantial but at first secret aid from the french government national independence now seemed to be a probability and perhaps a certainty it was undoubtedly a great encouragement to the struggling states the more foresighted of british statesmen now saw the hopelessness of a conflict which had lasted nearly two years and in which nothing more substantial had been gained by the english generals than the occupation of new york and a few towns on the coast while the americans had gained military experience and considerable prestige the whole civilized world pronounced washington to be both a hero and a patriot but the english government with singular obstinacy under the lash of george the third resolved to make renewed efforts to send to america all the forces which could be raised at a vast expense and to plan a campaign which should bring the rebels to obedience the plan was to send an army by way of canada to take the fortresses on lake champlain and then to descend the hudson and cooperate with howe in cutting off new england from the rest of the country in fact dividing the land in twain a plan seemingly feasible it would be possible to conquer each section east and south of new york in detail with victorious and overwhelming forces this was the great danger that menaced the states and caused the deepest solicitude so soon as the designs of the british government were known it became the aim and duty of the commander-in-chief to guard against them the military preparations of congress were utterly inadequate for the crisis in spite of the constant and urgent expostulations of washington there was as yet one hundred ten regular army and the militia shamefully deserted there was even a prejudice against a standing army and the militia of every state were jealous of the militia of other states congress passed resolutions and a large force was created on paper popular enthusiasm was passing away in the absence of immediate dangers so that despite the glorious success in new jersey the winter of seventeen seventy seven was passed gloomily and in the spring new perils arose but for the negligence of general howe the well-planned british expedition from the north might have succeeded it was under the command of an able and experienced veteran general burgoyne there was apparently nothing to prevent the junction of the forces of howe and burgoyne but the fortress of west point which commanded the hudson river to oppose this movement benedict arnold the bravest of the brave as he was called like marshal ney was selected assisted by general schuyler a high-minded gentleman and patriot but as a soldier more respectable than able and horatio gates a soldier of fortune who was jealous of washington and who like lee made great pretensions both englishmen by birth the spring and summer resulted in many reverses in the north where schuyler was unable to cope with burgoyne and had howe promptly cooperated that campaign would have been a great triumph for the british it was the object of howe to deceive washington if possible and hence he sent a large part of his army on board the fleet at new york under the command of cornwallis as if boston were his designation he intended however to capture philadelphia the seat of the rebel congress with his main force while other troops were to cooperate with burgoyne 
Washington, divining the intentions of Howe, with his ragged army, crossed the Delaware once more, at the end of July, this time to protect Philadelphia, leaving Arnold and Schuyler to watch Burgoyne and Putnam to defend the Hudson. When, late in August, Howe landed his forces below Philadelphia, Washington made up his mind to risk a battle and chose a good position on the heights near the Brandywine, but in the engagement of September 11th was defeated, through the negligence of Sullivan, to guard the fords above against the overwhelming forces of Cornwallis, who was in immediate command. Still he rallied his army with the view of fighting again. The Battle of Germantown, October 4th, resulted in an American defeat and the occupation by the British of Philadelphia, a place desirable only for comfortable winter quarters. When Franklin heard of it, he coolly remarked that the British had not taken Philadelphia, but Philadelphia had taken them, since 17,000 veterans were here kept out of the field when they were needed most on the banks of the Hudson to join Burgoyne, now on his way to Lake Champlain. This diversion of the main army of Howe to occupy Philadelphia was the great British blunder of the war. It enabled the Vermont and New Hampshire militia to throw obstacles in the march of Burgoyne, who became entangled in the forests of northern New York, with his flank and rear exposed to the sharpshooters of the enemy, fully alive to the dangers which menaced them. Sluggish as they were, and adverse to enlistment, the New England troops always rallied when pressing necessity stared them in the face, and fought with tenacious courage. Although Burgoyne had taken Ticonderoga on Lake Champlain, as was to be expected, he was, after a most trying campaign, at last surrounded at Saratoga, and on October 17th was compelled to surrender to the militia he despised. It was not the generalship of the American commander which led to this crushing disaster, but the obstacles of nature, utilized by the hardy American volunteers. Gates, who had superseded Schuyler in the command of the Northern Department, claimed the chief merit of the capture of the British Army, nearly 10,000 strong, but this claim is now generally disputed and the success of the campaign is ascribed to Arnold, while that of the final fighting and success is given to Arnold altogether with Morgan and his Virginia riflemen, whom Washington had sent from his own small force. The moral and political effect of the surrender of Burgoyne was greater than the military result. The independence of the United States was now assured, not only in the minds of American statesmen, but to European intelligence. The French government then openly came out with its promised aid, and money was more easily raised. The influence of Washington in securing the capture of Burgoyne was indirect, although the general plan of campaign and the rousing of the northern militia had been outlined by him to General Schuyler. He had his hands full in watching Howe's forces at Philadelphia. His defeat at Germantown, the result of accident which he could not prevent, compelled him to retreat to Valley Forge on the Schuylkill, about nine miles from Philadelphia. There he took up his quarters in the winter of 1777-78. to The sufferings of the army in that distressing winter are among the best-known events of the whole war. At Valley Forge, the trials of Washington culminated. His army was reduced to 3,000 men, incapable of offensive operations, without suitable clothing, food, or shelter. As the poor soldiers, says Fisk in his brilliant history, marched on the 17th of December to their winter quarters, the route could be traced on the snow by the blood which oozed from bare, frostbitten feet. For want of blankets, many were fain to sit up all night by fires. Cold and hunger daily added to the sick list, and men died for want of straw to put between them and the frozen ground. Gates, instead of marching to the relief of Washington before Philadelphia as he was ordered, kept his victorious troops idle at Saratoga, and was only by the extraordinary tact of Alexander Hamilton, the youthful aide, secretary, and counselor of Washington, 
who had been sent north for the purpose, that the return of Morgan with his Virginia riflemen was secured. Congress was shaken by the intrigues of Gates, who sought to supplant the commander-in-chief, and who had won to his support both Morgan and Richard Henry Lee. End of section 7